Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It speaks about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. So I don't want to hear any more about how far we've come when paid public servants can pull a drive-by on a 12-year-old playing alone in a park in broad daylight, killing him on television and then going home to make a sandwich. Tell Rakia Boyd how it's so much better to live in 2012 than it is to live in 1612 or 1712. Tell that to Eric Garner. Tell that to Sandra Bland. Tell that to Dorian Hunt. Did you think that African Americans have been lying for over 100 years about what they've been going through with the cops? That they were all lying? They all made it up? No, they all stayed in all the different parts of the country because it's true. That is what we do. But the rest of the media says, no, no, believe the cops first. Believe the government first, believe the oppressors first, and then if you point out that oppression, how dare you? How dare you? And I guarantee you people like Foxes will turn this around and try to blame Jesse Williams and call him all sorts of things. It's going to be about the color of my skin. 
skin. This is so sad. This is a nightmare. I can't sleep. I tried tea. I tried warm water. It's 2.30 a.m. and I can't sleep. I am scared to go out of my house because the only people I was trusting my life with are the only people I'm scared. Get his head out. He had you told him to get his ID, sir, his driver's license. showing one officer pinning Sterling to the ground while another officer kneels on his arm outside of Baton Rouge convenience store. You can see one officer drawing his gun and moments later, shots fired. He had, you told him to get his ID, sir, and his driver's license. I am really scared. Um, I just watched a video of a man, a human being, being killed like an animal. Rest in peace, Alton Sterling. And rest in peace, uh, Philando Castile, too. Now, I am a refugee from the Congo. I did not choose to be resettled in the Congo. The U.S. government, along with the UNHCR, made the decision to move us from a war-torn country and resettle us, relocate us in a safe place for our safety and security. Now, I am so scared that the only place I thought I could call home is the place that's bringing about the fear that I had for 23 years.
Good evening, everyone, and thank you for being with us at our common ground tonight as we breathe the many, many tragedies we have faced over the last week. We extend our heartfelt sympathies and join with the families of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, the families of Dallas officers who lost their lives in the line of duty. We hold each other in heartbreak as we watched one of our brothers crushed under the stress of hate and war destroy his life. Tonight, we ask the question, do black lives matter? And in the face of the executions of two black men this week, I'm Janice Grant, and I'll be listening for you. All we want to do is make pray. All we want to do is Can you tell me why? Every time I step outside, I see my niggas die. And good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us in this Our Common Ground special. 40 million black souls in America marginalized, traumatized, terrorized, and murdered. I recognize as a broadcaster that I have a responsibility and an obligation to serve my audience and to serve the race. So tonight I have sponsored this special broadcast because we too are the victims of police brutality, police over over policing and of police murder and in the lens that we all share from the events over the last five days we are continuing to layer the trauma and the heart break and the fracture and fissure as a people so we want to thank you for being with us. We are generally here on Saturdays at 10 p.m. But here on this Saturday night, there are a number of issues that we must confront. There is an urgent need to demand justice, to demand transparency and accountability, uh, to configure uh, honest and authentic discourse discussion without smudging the narratives of the interests of people in power and bring the voices of our people to a clarity that they can own. A robot with a bomb in America shooting into a car with a child in the back seat in America? cold-blooded executions being broadcast in video, in social media, in America, entering 
a jail alive but not so on the exit in America? A 12-year-old gunned down in a park in broad daylight in America? My response to that to you all tonight is yes, in black America. We do join the families of those who grieve this Sunday, and they are all victims of America's police state. And we are going to find the path to declare our collective wounds and injuries in the wake of the killing of more than 1,000 American citizens by police in 2016. And our common ground provides sanctuary for all of this. We are all outraged. We are all injured. We are all hurting. Joining us tonight um, are... Our Common Ground Voices that we can all depend on, uh, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, whose work spans across the various fields of philosophy, jurisprudence, Africana studies, and gender studies from Texas A&M University. Yvette Carnell, who writes about politics, international and cultural, cultural issues for Your Black World and BreakingBrown.com. Um, in her time on the Hill, she also worked as a regional field director for America's Family, one of the largest nonprofit get-out-the-vote campaigns active during the 2004 election uh, cycle. She is a graduate of Howard University with a BA in political science, and you can subscribe to her, BreakingBrown.com, by going right there. And she is also available for speaking and media engagements. Our Common Ground Voice, Dr. James L. Taylor, joins us again tonight. He is the University of San Francisco and UC Berkeley Black Studies Department Chair, Professor and Author of Black Nationalism in the United States, from Malcolm X to Barack Obama. And a newcomer to Our Common Ground, Irami Osei Frimpong. Whoa. He is joining us because he caught my eye um, on just today. I have been 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 visiting the funky philosopher, funky academic website, and being I went to school. And he, when we bring him in, we're going to. Um, um, learn more about him, and he is also hopefully going to be with us coming up this Saturday. Thanks again for being with us, and now we're going to be joined by our panel. And my first question on your behalf to Yvette Cornell, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, Dr. James Taylor, and we're going to go to Dr. Curry because he's going to have to leave us, is to what extent over the last five days has the demonization of men in our community been utilized? I am very concerned, and I will say very adamantly, it is not acceptable to blow up a suspect without trial and to provide the public the taxpaying public, with the story about what he said when if you have technology that can deliver a bomb to blow him up, then why isn't it 
all being recorded, both audio and video. So, Dr. Curry, I'm going to ask you tonight to start this out, and I want um, I want um, um, Dr. Um, Pong uh, to dial one so I can see that he is on the board. So let's start with you, Dr. Curry, and thank you for being, being with us tonight. No, no, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you know, Janice, we've talked about this for years. I think um, I think the, the conversations were happening two or three years ago about the ongoing demonization of black men uh, in society and how they've become some of the most visible victims of the state uh, has kind of arrived. Uh, there's a few problems that I think we have when we're understanding how black men are treated and perceived in this in this America that we're talking about today. You know, back in the day when the myth of the super predator came out in the mid-1990s, there was a debate about whether or not black men were criminogenic uh, and whether or not they were the burdening threat to the very fabric of American society. You fast forward a decade, and now we see that the very theories that are being disowned by somebody like Hillary Clinton is applying to all people um, and the specific pathology uh, that it was intended towards black men have been legislated and accepted by the public in mass. Uh, I think we see a twofold problem. Uh, on the one hand, we have people uh, like the police, like white America, even some black Americans um, that perceive black men to be uh, irremitable threats, uh, where the only way that you can solve the threat that they present through society is through death. I think when you look at the disproportionate rates of black men being killed over the last three years, since we actually have data since 2013 now, uh, you see that every year between 290 and 300 plus black men are killed. Uh, I think the way that this is accepted by the public is that these are threats. I think the way it's accepted and explained by Black Lives Matter is that even though they're victims, um, they are pathological in a certain sense because of their patriarchal rage, uh, that they should not be at the center of movements and they should not be leaders of certain movements. I think that the move for nonviolence by Black Lives Matter and their distancing uh, from the kind of rampage or the defense that some black men are taking against the cops is another example of how the bourgeois political movements of intersectional feminism can't address the brute realities that black men suffer from. Uh, The state is engaged in a kind of technological warfare where there are no longer trials. We saw this with Chris Dorner, where there are no longer trials for black men. Um, black men have no rights. They don't have any Second Amendment rights. They don't have 14th Amendment rights. There is no due process when the state engages black males. So the effect of that is that even in a case where black men are allegedly saying that they're resisting against the state, the state acts as the juror and the judge. So they're able to blow them up. And the, and the problem with this is, is that there isn't public outrage around that aspect. Like we've moved, black men serve, the positionality of black men in America serves an example of the kind of state, police state, and the sort of fascism that the government actually presents to society. But because they're black men and they're dehumanized beyond the point of recognition, no one is questioning what it means to use military-grade technology to eliminate a suspect without trial. 
we Amen. have accepted we have accepted the normalization of black male death, and that doesn't mean. And and, I, and, and Janice, I have to make a distinction here. People think that when you say that you've accepted or normalized black male death, it means that people don't see it. That's not the point. The point is people see it, but they don't recognize it as consequential. So we're engaged in a movement now where the state is killing black men, and our political parties, our political protests are accepting those very same deaths as the basis of their political voice. We're actually debating the worth of black male life. The outrage doesn't come from the fact that we've lost one innocent black man. The outrage comes from the fact we've lost 300 innocent black men, and this is going to spiral into the black community. There has to become, there has to have an intrinsic value to black male life. And because the state knows that the public accepts the at-large threat that black men pose to society, which is a racist mythology, a racial misandrous mythology. They know that they have more leadway in these deaths, which is why you would never have this happen if it was a white child, if it was a white woman especially. So we've accepted or we've surrendered a kind of consciousness and appraisal to the state because to a certain extent all the language that we're using, even in our progressive movements, accepts that while there is a problem with the police killing black men, that black men themselves in the state is a problem. And this has large this should have large constitutional implications to how you can just blow up a suspect, right? Before we even knew the name of the man, we were already getting reports that he's dead. But because he shares the same body as the other victims, the cops rationalize that he's just another black man. It's inconsequential if they kill him. So there's not, there's not a question of human rights. There's not a question of civil rights. And unfortunately, given this kind of, the, the recent Supreme Court uh, decision and the way that the society is operating under the mass murders of black men generally, there are no constitutional infringements here. And, Dr. Curry, one of the things that I want to highlight is that over the last 24 hours, the, the media being fed by uh, police departments and are drilling down on demonizing a person who is no mm-hmm. longer able to represent himself. Right. The other is that now he is not only being demonized, he's, they are creating him as a monster, yes. writing messages in blood. And, 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 they, and it was even reported on N- MSNBC today that he was making bombs in his house and testing them in his backyard. He lived and with his singing. mother. Right. But, but, but isn't that the way it goes, though, Janice? Notice... The reason, I mean, and and this is a historical pattern. Notice how everyone else speaks for the dead black male. So while in our culture there's a certain honorific phase of it, and usually, you know, from Emmett Till forward where we know that Emmett Till was killed so his mother spoke on his behalf. And in some cases those things are parallel. But imagine a world. Emmett Till was a child. He was, he was. But the way that we've accepted black male death is that they are always dead and the history is retold. In this case... Because of white supremacy, black men die, and the state has now come to control those narratives about their lives. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the stories and – notice, and notice how this happens, right? Even in the cases, you go all the way back. You go to Sterling. You go to Castile. The media plays, fills in the narrative. They don't ask the black community. The media fills in the narrative of what these black men meant to the world. And in this yeah. case, the police state is doing it. Yeah, like so I was dying out – Dropping all over the floor, rolling, laughing because the 
Dallas police, the FBI, and the CIA have been trying to figure out what RBG means all day long. Mm-hmm. They didn't bother to ask any <laughs> black people. <laughs> right, but that's, I mean, but that's what I'm saying. I mean, before we had our communities, right, and we had we had the mothers of these people telling the stories of our of the of fallen black men. In the in the mass media age, where now those visceral stories have been taken over by social media mm-hmm. and various you know civil rights organizations based on social protests and students, that narrative has been co-opted. So that people who own the media waves are now able to easily usurp the story that people who claim to be invested in black male lives are able to actually spread to the public. So in this way, in this way, the state is able to manipulate the way that not only society sees black men, but also bring people up for their justifications, just like Darren Wilson. They believed he was a Hulk. Society believed he was Hulk. He became a Hulk. So this, this is the same pattern of demonization that we're going to see yeah. after every black male death. Let's get some. Let's get some comment. I, I heard someone. I hear um, someone cooking cookies in the background, and it's being picked up by your phone. But it's not me. Let's, okay, <laughs> not me is, is this is this Doctor Funky academic? Yeah, this is Armiose Frimpong. I'm a PhD oh, good to meet you. And thank you for agreeing yeah. to join us, uh, Doctor Ose Frimpong. I don't know if Taylor, the rest of you. James Taylor's here too. Who? James, yeah, James L. Taylor. Uh, Dr. Taylor is with us, and Yvette Carnell is with us as oh, well. So why don't we have the panel come in and respond to some of the things that Dr. Curry has had to say. I actually have a, a quick question for Dr. Curry about his yes. distinction between black lives and mm-hmm. um, black rights. And I, I worry that that sets the bar too low, because what we're talking about is black rights not mattering. And um, I think the emphasis on death, while it is spectacular and while it's, um, it's critical and important and, like, maybe on some absolute scale more important than just rights um, degradations, our problem right now as black people is that our rights claims are not taken seriously. So I, I actually wish the movement moved from Black Lives Matter to Black Rights Matter uh-huh. And I think that would actually incorporate some of the um, the less spectacular but more important or at least significantly important uh, struggles that we're in. For example, the case against the Fourth Amendment that happened last last uh, week that pretty much said black rights don't matter if you live in a zip code and ha- that happens to have a habit of, of 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 handing out warrants to black 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 bodies or black rights or Non-whites don't rights don't matter with respect to even the gun bill that's casual about this no-fly list that we know is racialized and we know um, disproportionately implicates non-white um, Americans. We know this, but their rights don't matter relative to white rights. So I think what we need to and like and um, uh, Micah's uh, uh, rights to due process. They simply don't matter. So I, don't, I worry that if we focus on life, we might participate in, in innovating the rights discourse that is central to, like, the quality of, of black life. Mm-hmm. Well, but I mean, one of the things we have to be very, very careful about is in our, 
and I just took your course on, on discourse to, uh, today, so I have to say oh, yeah. in our discussions that we okay. understand that there are multiple dimensions to the cultural understanding of some of these issues. For instance, um, many black poor people in this country have not been able to synthesize to the extent that the hashtag Black Talk, Black Lives Matter, and what it means in their lives, other than the the emotional part. Uh, Dr. Karini, vet, jump right on in here. We've got uh, an hour and a half, and it's on you. Yes, ma'am. Um, well, if I could respond really quickly. Uh, one of my criticisms of Black Lives Matter has exactly been that it doesn't focus on political economics, which is why it has a class or bourgeois sentiment, nor does it focus on constitutional or human rights that are being violated both at the level of, of government and at the level of UN or the Declaration, you know, the International Declaration of Human Rights. So I don't disagree with you on that point. However, I think when you look at populations and how societies use populations uh, for their own uses, be it through exploitation, mass incarceration, or in this case, death, or what I think is a is a delayed or instrumental aspect of genocide, you see that the dehumanized status of black men very much relies on socializing the public to accept their death as normalized. Right. Now, I'm not saying that we should. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that black life in and of itself is. Should be the slogan. I, in fact, disagree with that because I think Black Life Matter is just a glorification of the spectacular aspects of black male death. However, I would say that when you look at the way that the black male is ritualized, the way that he is, you know, memorialized, the way that it is popularized when you share videos over and over again of him dying, I think that that has the effect of reifying his dehumanized status. And we should switch from those glorifications in many ways to a more constitutional, we should get lawyers involved, we should get people who are trying to deal with structural things here. And in fact, this is what I think should be the revolutionary basis of Black Lives Matter, which is why I think that nonviolence fails, because it depends on the grotesqueness of seeing black men die over and over again and then trying to appeal to the moral character of white people. And I think that's a very ineffective historical strategy. Dr. Taylor? Um, I can sit and listen to Tommy, brother, uh, all day. Hurry, yeah. <laughs> we all go uh, So much of what he's saying, I'm just like, this brother is is just hitting it out the park for me um, because I think he's spot on about both the character and the structure of the leadership um, and the ideological basis and even the class basis of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I do know more recently, though, I, I was, you know, as equally harsh of Black Lives Matter in that it didn't seem to take the lesson from the Panthers of mm -hmm. developing the uh, you know civil society programs that really gave the Panthers their real imp impact in the Black community was not the political or the you know the sort of bootstrap gesturing you know with the dashikis and the and the and the shotguns up at Sacramento, um, but it was more about and what Jagger Hoover identified as the real threat of the Black Panther Party was the civil society development of the sickle cell tests and the food programs and the freedom schools. And I think that is what I... Dr. Taylor? Can you hear me? Yes. Hello? Yes. Yes, go ahead. Oh, yeah. You know, so I was saying, you know, with these, many of these young people um, in the Black Lives Matter movement, I wish that they had turned their energy with all of the capacity and skills that they have 
uh, back into community and engage in community development. Now they can do two things at one time, um, but I think there needs to be more. Of a, well, I mean, I mean, the Panthers, the Panthers. I think again, I'll make reference to an example, a recent example, is the Black Panther Party. Um, it won, the, it, it it sustained itself not through its political gestures as much as it did through meeting the people where they were. Um, and I think that's what Black Lives Matter has to do, has done, has to do rather. I, I do know, though, recently I saw a national survey that did say 70% um, of African Americans polled do support Black Lives Matter in the abstract. Uh, and so I think we need to be careful as academics and intellectuals of also not repeating what we might accuse the Black Lives Matter activists of doing, which is to be um, you know, above and apart from the community it claims to represent. This was the great, this was the great tragedy, I think, between Cle- uh, Eldridge Cleaver and Huey P. Newton out here in Oakland, where I live, um, that, you know, Huey said that when the Black Panther Party began criticizing the black church, and it did deserve the criticism, but it got really brutal and blunt and harsh in ways that um, rejected the black church's utility as a civil society institution. And Huey said that when we defected the black church, we defected the black community. So I'm not really here and interested in debating religion or the role of the black church. I'm only saying as a civil society institution, understood that if you want to be, if you want black lives to matter, then the millions and tens of thousands of young black people that we see mobilized, when all of this is settled, when all the blood finishes, they have to turn their energy um, to, to community development. The problem of black America, I think, and I think what uh, Howard Cruz tried to convey to us, is the problem of underdevelopment. And I think that's mm-hmm. what we have to deal with as a people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but one of the things that I, I worry about, and I know, Dr. Say, you want to get in here, uh, but let me just make this point. The point is that we are, as a people, injured in such a way that we cannot catch up. We are right. broken. Yes. We are so broken in so many places. <laughs> right. Yes. And my concern is, especially around what happened in Dallas, uh-huh. that, I mean, I did not, Wednesday night or Thursday night or whatever night it was when it happened, when I tweeted Blowing up people in America is not acceptable. I was really all alone in making that statement so clearly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Apparently Uh, it is acceptable because we did it. And and what I'm concerned about is that, um, I mean, my 14-year-old grandson said to me, they blew the man up. Wow, as though it was a video game or some shit, and I, and I kind of like blanched and had to have a long conversation with him about what that meant. He became but, an extraneous Negro. Yes. So you know the thing is, I'm afraid that people are looking at this and saying, "Oh, that's the way they do it now." Exactly, and that's. But, but Jenna, this is what I'm saying. With Chris Darner, they socialized it with the drones, right? Because right. they used the drone to kill them. Now they're using robot bombs. Notice how all the tests of police militarization and the advancement right. of, uh, of police technology <laughs> happens on black male bodies. Now the question so that we have to ask ourselves is how is it possible that we're having movements 
that instead of talking about that part of the state, is distance itself from the from the radicalization of these black men by saying, "Hey, it's not us. We're nonviolent." They right. released two or three statements to that effect, and that this is what I'm saying. This is not a structural or systemic program that engages the neoliberal and militarization of the police state. This is a program that uses blackmail deaths as a way to reach out to the American public to say that we have a problem, recognize the problem, and then reform. They have no program if the plan A of white people reforming and being empathetic to the loss of black male life does not work. And that's the problem. We've established that Black Lives Matter may not be the answer. So I feel like instead of uh, beating that horse, can we can we be a little bit more creative? About well, well, let me let me things? let me also add. Well, no, I, I mean, I, I don't think I don't think that's appropriate. I mean, I think we need to talk this through. For example, when we're talking about these brothers down there in Dallas. I mean, let's be clear. The Dallas Police Department accused, accused two black men that night. They mm-hmm. said they had a woman. They claimed they had some other groups. They had three men, but they accused two black men that night. One was Brother Hughes and his brother, and they, and they found out that they were not guilty. This was the original man that they said did it. And then the second one is the one they blew up without due process, and we're supposed to trust this? I'm not willing to and just rush on beyond this conversation if that's what the brother's suggesting. I want to get well, that point in there because they accused, they accused two, I hear you, they accused two black men that night. Let's think about that. Two. But they also one, said it was a One was found to be a rush to judgment, and the second one was blown up. And we don't even know if there were, you know, he had no due process. He had no ability to defend himself. He may have been able to argue PTSD. He may have been, been able to argue diminished capacity. He could have argued a black rage defense, which is a legitimate diminished capacity argument that has been used in courts. In my book on black nationalism, I document uh, a forerunner of this brother, Micah X. Um, Johnson, uh, known as Robert Charles down in Louisiana in the 1890s, a follower of Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, who does the same thing down in New Orleans, kills a bunch of cops who one day just decide to mess with him when he's outside waiting for his date to come out for a date. And he, too, like this brother, who studied with Professor Griff, was a black nationalist. Robert Ch- difference. I think we need to talk about this in those who are driven by a political ideology, like Brother um, Marcus, uh, Brother Curry is suggesting, and those who are simply engaged in um, uh, a psychological breakdown. In other words, Robert Charles and Michael Johnson were driven by a black conscious ideology. They were not there for, uh, because they had mental breakdown. I think uh, Dr. O'Shea was saying the the movement Black Lives Matter, the organization Black Lives Matter, uh, is is something that we fundamentally are not going to be able to change now. I, I and 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 I agree about that. I think that they have a headset that is turned on full blast and they're not listening to anybody. <laughs> I guess. And that's fine. That's that good is, for them. But we need to ask you now. Let yes, me ask you. You are the person that. You read the news all the way across the Internet and back again. And when this first happened, and we're talking about Makai Xavier Johnson, when this first happened, was it your understanding in the reporting that there was a triangulated military sniper operation going on? Was that your understanding? That was exactly my understanding, that someone was perched atop a roof somewhere and taking out cops. And took out five 
and killed him and then injured four more. That was some kind of sniper. And then I saw a video of him running behind pillars and some such thing. So that was exactly my understanding. You know, and and then the other part, this is, you know, because one of the things that I'm starting to think, and and you all are the intellectuals, I'm simply the moderator of the issues and 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 talking points at this at this point. But one of the things that happened that we're no one is talking about is that the first characterization of Mackay Xavier Johnson was that he had sexually harassed. An, uh, um, an, another person in the in in Afghanistan, wherever they were based, and but he was never brought up on charges, and he was honorably discharged. Right, that was like another extrajudicial um, right lynching. Well, the myth of the black workers. Yes, so that was the first well, well, thing they well, brought well, up about it, him. Compare that to Mr. Dorner, though. It was, it was, it, the, the, that was the same scenario about him. That this was all sour grapes, that mm-hmm. that he hadn't achieved, and so, and so that's why he had gone on this rampage. The fact that you know he was inferior, so he mm-hmm. was really beseeched by his own inferiority. And I, I just let me just touch on one thing that that, that 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 Dr. Curry said just a minute ago about I think he called it the bourgeois sentiment. And mm-hmm. I, I all weekend and probably you know since this happened, I have been watching. Um, Bourgeois Negroes on television discussing <laughs> healing and discussing how we should come together. And I just want to say that, you know, for me, the, the problem that I have is that these people of a certain age, a lot of these people are boomers. Like, a lot of these people are making very good money, money, more money than a lot of white people. And I don't think that these people have a right to tell poor black people, especially right. poor black men, you know, that, that it's time to heal and when it's time to move on. I, I, right. I, I don't have that authority. And so, and so let me just finish. And they what? failed. Like, their movement failed. That's why we're here today. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's what we did. Like, it didn't work. So my thing is, and, I, and, and to just piggyback... To just piggyback on what on what Tommy J. Curry said, you know, I don't want to I don't want to I understand that black people we are in a lot of ways, especially economically, we are we are a collective and I want us to work together. But the one thing that I think about, if I was in that passenger seat and I said, Hold on, officer, I have a weapon and I you know, you can't see my hand I don't know if I don't know if as a fair skinned, you know, black woman I would have died that day. You know, if, if, I had, if I was a woman riding in a Mercedes as opposed to the car that they were driving in, I don't know if I would have died that day. So what I would really like to see in terms of a movement, I would like to see this movement kind of led by poor black people, especially poor black men, because I can't see through that lens. That's not my lens. And, and so even if, even, if I, even if I put on Tommy J. Curry's lens, right, he's a philosopher. He's a highly educated black man, but that's still not my lens. I still don't see what he sees. And so I know that I'm not seeing what the what the poor what this what, what poor people see through their lens. Even though I come from a working class family, I'm not seeing through that lens. And I want this movement led by people through that lens. So I don't I'm not a, I'm not a person who wants to see Earl O'Farry Hutchinson. I'm not saying no disrespect, but you can't come on MSNBC and talk about how we got to come together. This is not your role. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me stop you for a minute before the next comment. Someone has their is listening to the program on their computer and it's coming over your telephone. Uh, and because of the delay, it's uh, distorting uh, the live broadcast. So if you can turn it down, turn it off, or we are 
we archive all of our shows, and they are available to be listened to on demand immediately after the live program. Thank you very much. Yvette, you're making an, 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 an a, even... That's a powerful point, Yvette. Yeah. Even the people who are supposed to be doing cover for the government no. is missing the point of how you do effective cover. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if they are. Like, I... I'm not very impressed with our black leadership or with either the moral or practical like acuity of the CBC or all these Negroes on MSNBC. Like I, I, we call them the Negro whisperers on our common ground. Okay. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> but I think, but I think because they come to joke, a... but they're actually they're a problem. They're a real problem, and right. I don't know how to dethrone them. Right. Well, if I, guess, if I, I may very quickly. If I may very quickly, Janice. You okay, because uh, the... Tommy Curry has to leave. I, yeah. I promised Gwinnetta. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, but I think this is an overall problem. You know, I think I think what Yvette says is extremely powerful because there there, there are two or three things happening here. One, there is a bourgeois capital, uh, you know, a bourgeois consciousness to Black Lives Matter. I think this is where you get the nonviolence and the plea for recognition. The second problem is because Black Lives Matter has been one of the biggest – Movements happening after Ferguson, we, we've kind of we've kind of forgotten all the things that happened with Trayvon. We've kind of forgotten all the grassroots protests and the demands there. It means that Black Lives Matter has kind of had a paradigmatic effect on how back both academics and the public think about civil rights protests in the 21st century. And the third problem is there is a very deliberate and conscious decision to keep this movement out of the hands of poor black men, despite them being the biggest victims. Now, I think that when you look at the way those three things work, it inevitably turns you into a petite bourgeois movement where black people who are on MSNBC, black leaders, and as much as I like what Jesse Williams said, black leaders with visibility and a public or celebrity position capture more people's attention. And in all this happening, while it mobilizes people that are on social media, that are on black Twitter, that are students at universities, it does not speak to the marginalization <laughs> and the isolation that you get in these poor working class communities throughout the urban north and definitely within the rural south. The problem with that is means that those people have become the fuel for a movement led by people very different and distinct from them because of their class position. So poor black males die, middle class black women who have an intersectional agenda that want celebrity get to become popular off of it. And this is a dynamic that we have to question within our own communities. We cannot, we cannot let this become a new, a new death machine. We can't let the death drive towards black, poor black males fuel the careers of people who want to move into positions of power within white establishments. And I think DeRay McKesson is a very good example of that very dynamic within right. this kind of movement. Can somebody please explain to me or send him an email that when you're in real jail, you, don't, you can't be on Periscope. And you don't wear a ski jacket in 90-degree weather. So for his plea to get him out of jail, this plea to get him out of jail was just comical in my mind because he was periscoping from – that wasn't a real jail. Janice, if I could could jump in here real quick. This is James uh, Taylor. I just want to uh, sort of add that when you think about – We just like, lost. <laughs> I was thinking. To, you know, Benson Hurst, I mean, really, it really goes back, way back, 
you know, but most most immediately, I think, and I just want to add this to Tommy's comments, and that is just so, just sort of ask the panel to consider that the Black Lives Matter movement is largely late to the arrival of this uh, larger struggle, whatever however you want to characterize it. And I think part of it, uh, what needs to be understood is that from January um, 1st, 2009, when Oscar Grant was murdered here in Oakland, California at Fruitvale Station by Bart Police Department, to me that's the, the, the beginning and the, uh, at least the beginning of this, of this whole era. And that the Oscar Grant movement explains, for example, why um, the Occupy movement uh, ended here in Oakland, California, and Oakland, California, with Occupy, Occupy Oakland, took attention away from Zuccotti Park in New York City, and Occupy largely ended here in Oakland because the Oscar Grant movement had the networks and the relationships of, civil, of these different organizations representing all kinds of interests, environment, uh, immigration, uh, anti-banks, uh, etc., um, and, and that time period uh, it has, has covered the entire presidency of Barack Obama. And the movement itself transcends Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter attached itself to this movement. And it is important to know that Black Lives Matter also is spawned here in Oakland, California, where Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter was spawned here in Oakland, out of the Oscar Grant movement. And to make the mistake of putting all of our discussion about this struggle in the context, uh, in, in the frame of Black Lives Matter, a larger struggle, a disservice. Vincent Harding made a, wrote a powerful book called There is a River, and he documented the way in which our struggle is an ongoing, flowing thing, and no individual like King or, or Obama or even Ella Baker or anyone is one of the flow of that struggle. So I think Black Lives Matter needs to be put in that context to understand that it is parasitic to a larger struggle of black people to find freedom by any means necessary. Go ahead, Dr. Osei. Yeah, we're not going to teach Black Lives Matter any... Um, there's so much work to be done in this struggle. I'm ready to seed uh, them because I don't think they're taking up that much room. They're just taking up a vacuum because there aren't enough other organizations. I'm trying to figure out how to grow other organizations, where to get that capital. Right. Um, so, right. Right. so, like, <laughs> they all so learn yeah, no, talk at the Soros Institute. Yeah, open society. Getting through. Okay. Well, but how do but how do we do that? Right. You know, this is the problem. The world where a black academic has to be nonviolent. A world where Poor black people who try to organize are read as violent, if even if they're not. Uh, a world where black men get shot, even if they if they even possess a gun legally. How does one even come up with a radical movement? It's not the it's not the sixties and seventies, and this is where I think the constitutional erosion of black people's rights, especially the second and the fourteenth, become very 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 important for us in terms of our rights to organize in the in the way that we think about political protest because now. It seems that a black man with a gun, regardless if it's legal or illegal, is is marked for death. <laughs> yes. And this is, and and as much as we don't like the politics or identity politics of that, that becomes a very dangerous situation historically, given that most of the revolutionary movements led throughout the world have been based on poor male oppressed peoples. Uh huh. One of the reasons. At some point one of the reasons that that Becky with the with the good hair lost Uh-oh. at the Supreme Court is because of the Fourth Amendment ruling, that what they were doing in the configuration was giving us that 
so that mm-hmm. we wouldn't be so disheartened or pay attention to what uh, Justice Thomas, it, it just gives me bile in my mouth to even say his name, um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, uh, delivered on the first, Fourth Amendment ruling. Because I think all of this is orchestrated. I think that this is at, uh, an infrastructure that has been under construction for years. Yes. Beyond yeah. Obama. Let, let me just say one thing about rights. You, we, we all, you know, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard, um, you know, the mention of the erosion of rights. And one of the things that struck me was the, 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 the black man who was wrongfully suspected of being the shooter. You know, mm-hmm. we all, when, we all, when we talk about rights in this country, one of the things that we talk about when people talk about the right to bear arms is that if there is an active shooter, you can defend people. You can, you can, you can take the shooter out, you know, if, if necessary, because you too have a gun and you too are trained. But what we saw is that this black man had to give the police his gun. Because Absolutely. They don't have a right to self-defense, yeah, so so what kind of, so do you really have a second amendment right? We know you don't have a fourth amendment right anymore. No, you don't. So do you even have a second amendment right anymore? Like how does the constitution impact us? Like it, it doesn't protect us at all. The, no. the, and the question people is can black out there people live in Hickey, who took over the federal facility had rights. Mr. Castile mm-hmm. did not. Right. That's the decision. So the question is how do we increase the rights discourse and the rights enforcement for black people? Because once we start eroding rights for everyone, it's going to hit black people first. It's going to hit black people first. And that's why I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to bring, I'll bring it to presidential politics really quickly. But one thing that Bernie Sanders actually did give us was that he actually gave us a language for rights. And that was almost coming into the discourse almost coming into the political discourse where he talks about health care as a right, then people started asking, well, what is a right anyway? And why are rights important? And that's actually something the NRA, I know we don't like the NRA, we're not supposed to like the NRA, but that's actually one thing that the NRA does very well. They talk in terms of rights. And like black people, yeah. we need to start talking in terms of rights or we're not going to have anything that has content in our life. No, we, we like to talk in terms of privilege, right? We, we've replaced <laughs> rights with the discourse of privilege, white privilege, no privilege, cis privilege. And that becomes the dominating lens or paradigm by which we evaluate the loss of black life nowadays. And this is why we have an unsophisticated and not very well-developed platform on how economics, the law, and the police state interact with each other, which is a discourse that practically every Black Panther had. Mind you, the same ones that they think are these maniac uh, patriarchs all had PhDs and were activists. Or lawyers, which is much more than I can say about the leadership that's in the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, that's a very important point, and I'm still hearing somebody's computer uh, online, um, and it's di- going to distort the 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 on the recording of this broadcast. And this and these voices are so important. You're absolutely right, uh, Dr. Curry. We who gave us this language. Language is everything. Language okay, is let, me, let me jump in here real quick. Let me jump in here real quick, uh, if I can, because I, I love this discussion about language and writing. Semester that I think that in some ways, and please let me know if you disagree, anyone, that we in some ways have lost the language that we that King had available to him at the March on Washington, 
he was able to speak the language even if it disagreed with him and wouldn't support him. Hello? to their 10-point plan, the, the Nation of Islam, David Walker's appeal, all of these. Dr. Oh, Taylor, we keep, you keep dropping uh, for some reason. Right. Are you sitting I'm still? Dropping. I'm dropping. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll, I'll try. Um, You're the, doing a Pascal yeah. Robert thing. <laughs> right. Right. I don't know what's going on. You leave that man alone. I can't hear it. <laughs> but but well, so real quick, you were talking about David Walker's appeal. Yeah, yeah, and just the importance of the of the, of the Declaration of Independence throughout Black history. If you if you look at these major um, literary um, and spoken you know spoken word uh, documents, I mean from again you know David Walker's appeal to the Black Panther Party ten point plan to King's I Have a Dream to Obama's inauguration. The Declaration of Independence language has been something that Frederick Douglass used, for example, in his powerful Fourth of July speech, and that was the main uh, document that he, you know, relied on, despite his, you know, embrace of early abolitionism, you know, uh, and 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 that language of rights, I argue, somewhere along the line in the 60s and 70s, we've lost it, and now we don't even have it available to ourselves or to each other to even agree to disagree with the dominant culture. Something else has set in, and we can't even talk because the state, and I, I love Tommy's uh, emphasis on the, the role of the state here, not just the police. We don't need to talk about the police. We need to be talking about the state in, in, writ large and its choice, its decisions to uh, declare literal war against its citizens. But we've always used um, the language of the state uh, and of the, uh, you know, the, the larger you know, social narrative, if you will, the, the social compact. And now we don't have that because they don't even believe in it. They don't believe in rights yeah. anymore. Yeah. So they can't even have a conversation <laughs> with us making claims to rights. Right. right. I mean, this is so a real we, problem. Everybody that has an open mic, shut your computers off because we're getting an echo. I hear myself. Okay. Dr. Taylor, you're you're absolutely right. And the idea of how we regain, you know, when we talk about losses, what, what our people have lost, you're absolutely right, because it helped us form at every level some conceptual understanding of our oppression in this country. Hi. Hello? Well said. That's well said. Yeah, I agree. You know, Janice. I mean, I think I think one of our problems as well is that there's we, we black people have lost what they think oppression is, um, and and I understand why you know why we don't want to hammer on Black Lives Matter as the as the central focus, even though they're a popular discourse. We're, you have to understand that while black people are dying, right? Because you know, and this is this is what I'm always pushing. You know, like sometimes when we have the the shows, especially on black males, the, the black males dying affects the black community. The logics of criminalization on black men is the justification for why they do no-knock raids and they end up killing people like that baby Ayanna Stanley. So if black people focus on the gender of the bodies that are dying and the gender of the bodies that are leading the movement, 
then the arguments we're having are not about the actual quality of life or the substance right. of citizenship right. in the United States, but rather some political or ideological idealization of what certain groups of people want because they are the ones that argue they should, in fact, have power over black people's deaths. In fact, it's so bad now that what you see coming out of MSNBC, what you see coming out of blogs, what you see happening even on the web page of Black Lives Matter is it's a fight for who gets to control the interpretation of black people's death. That is not how you build a revolutionary <laughs> movement that is trying mm-hmm. to structurally change and adjust the organization of society for black people to, in fact, live as citizens which then necessitates the right to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. But because that's not a conversation, we don't have the sophistication to even identify these problems. And what you're explaining, uh, Dr. Tommy, is is the, the fundamental idea that within our community, in our race, we do not recognize the levels of both economic class uh, educational class, and and it's problematic. Absolutely. And that's why I talk on this show a lot about our word for the our word for the month of June was extrapolate. Mm-hmm. People have to be able to extrapolate from the discussions and the and the town square uh, conversation how it affects their lives and to whom they are connected. We don't feel any connection to the people with the uh, – we, we don't give a goddamn that 650 <laughs> units of Section 8 uh, 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 housing is going to be destroyed in New York City, and only 350 of those units are going to be replaced. We didn't care when the Obama administration decided that they were just going to wash their hands of public housing assistance in a different way and privatize it because we're too busy talking about neoliberalism. Right. Uh-huh. We like dropping hashtags. Instead of your housing government is 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 about to screw you <coughs> to the walls. I almost said. Well, I think the else. problem with that was that the director of HUD was Latino, and we're too busy saying that we can't critique other people of color. We accepted his um, appoint- we accepted his appointment because it was his internship to be Hillary Clinton's running mate. That's why he was there. San Antonio, Texas, where he was the mayor, had still had shanties. Yeah, and one yeah of the first I, I things, agree. One of the first disaster. things he did yeah. when he came into yeah. office was to screw up a black developer in Dallas around providing affordable housing in the downtown because the mayor didn't want it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. here we are. And the thing, and, and to your question, Dr. Osei, is, because if I try to say your whole name, I, I'm going to uh, lose my thoughts. It's okay. But okay. We'll, we'll introduce you on the second hour properly. But <laughs> here's the deal. The deal is you have a government who has decided that we are disposable, that we are exactly. should be invisible, and that it's okay with us, with most <laughs> of us. Well, the question, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of black people who are paid to tell other black people that it's okay that your government thinks you're disposable. Um, um, Carol, Carol Swain is doing it all over the CNN. 
Yeah, he paid very good money to tell other black people that your rights are really privileges and um, you can claim them if you want, but the government doesn't have to guarantee them. I just want to be very clear when I say that. What do we talk about when we talk about rights? Rights are nothing more than expressions of freedom, externalized expressions of freedom. So if you cannot claim your rights, that means you're not free. That means, and they're externalized expressions of freedom. So insofar as poor people are free, they have rights. Insofar as disabled people are free, they have rights. Now, when you start saying that some people have rights and some people don't have rights, you're saying that those people who don't have rights aren't free. They can't externalize their freedom. So you're saying that if you're poor, you're not really free. If you're disabled, you're not really free. If you're black, you're not really free. So there's a lot at stake in eroding rights discourse or turning rights into privileges because privileges are something we dole out to some people, but it's okay not to give them to everybody. So it's okay that, like, you know, Kobe Bryant gets a championship ring, but, like, I do little videos on the Internet. That's fine. He has some privileges. I don't. That's fine. But insofar as we both have rights, my rights need to be guaranteed by my government as well as anybody else's, regardless of any other factors about me, whether I'm poor, whether I'm disabled, whether I'm black, whether I'm male. Like, rights are freedoms. And insofar as everyone is free, everyone has rights. And we cannot give up this rights discourse because that means we're giving up a discourse about how freedom is externalized in the world and is recognized in the world. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. But I mean, this is the dangerous part of of a millennial generation claiming they lead a political movement that has no net knowledge of political economics or government. You know, and that's that's the disappointment. <laughs> they don't the disappointment need to. They got that, jobs. They got hashtags. <laughs> they got internships. <laughs> like, let's not, let's, I don't know. Hey, Yvette, it, do they have jobs? Only the Ray yeah, they, they are the they are paid. <laughs> They are paid Negro whisperers. But this, is, but but Janice, this is what I really like about Yvette's work. I'm I'm a, I'm a huge fan of hers. Is that she's constantly pointing out the necessity of looking at economics and the position of the people who are put in place to speak for Black people. Right. And and we don't have a mainstream voice making that argument. I mean, the best you get is Cornell West. But then even Cornell West, you know, teeters that line because sometimes he's part of that group and then sometimes he's on the outs with that group. But then when you look at someone like Melissa Harris-Perry, you see, and this is why I say that this kind of neoliberal identity politic feminism is so dangerous, is because I'm very curious to know how on the one hand you have a nationalist platform that says that black men are patriarchal, black men are violent, they abuse women. And then on the other hand, they're killed and you hold the same view, but then you're like, oh, but they're not violent enough to be shot in the street like dogs. The question is, what is the ongoing human aspect of black males in this society? And if you have the same group of people that says sometimes they're violent, but other times we feel bad for them, this doesn't give us a necessary picture to talk about black male humanity, nor does it give us a position to actually talk about the worth of black men in relationship to their own people. And one of the most disturbing things I constantly see being shared around the Internet is this view that now you have black women out marching for black men, but black men still want white women. Black men are still sleeping with white women. Black men are rapists. You see, we have this sexualized discourse around these people like Alton Sterling, who's who's a victim of police brutality. But then there's this pushback, even amongst some of our own bourgeois black circles, that are negotiating the worth of his life based on their politics. 
And that's a very, very dangerous place to be in when you have leading intellectuals and people in a movement that get to reinterpret the value of a black man's life based on how closely he, he aligns to what their personal politics are. There has to be an intrinsic value to black people, especially poor black males, that doesn't teeter between him as a person and him as being pathological. But see, this is why I want to, again, if you all can hear me, go back to, you know, the discussion we had earlier. Here in California, in the, in the prisons, um, in Corcoran and Pelican Bay, during the Black Lives Matter uh, centrism of, the, of, the, of this movement, a lot of people have slept on the fact that there was a, a movement of the very men you're talking about, Brother Curry, um, mm-hmm. who were inmates in, I believe it was Pelican Bay out here, who engaged in months and months of a hunger strike, and the outcome was a concession from Governor um, Brown, Jerry Brown, to eliminate um, solitary confinement in California prisons. That came from the brothers and the sisters you're talking about. Now, the, you know, the, the potential rev- revolutionary element, potentially, but they, they definitely were engaged in their own action, and they got a concession from the governor that Black Lives Matter as a movement uh, writ large uh, was not able to get. And he also eliminated uh, here in California grand juries in cases where police officers shoot citizens unarmed. So those don't come from the Black Lives Matter movement. They come from local black men in prisons here in California. And there's, I think, a great deal of potential um, in, the, in the prison nation of the black community. Absolutely. Curry, I know you got to go, and I yes, apologize ma'am. that we have held you long over the time that we agreed that. <laughs> He's a great guy. Curry, that Stop that, you vet. Stop but, it. But you know I'm a you know you know you I am uh, a slave catcher. <laughs> so, yes, ma'am. <laughs> I'm catching you for Saturday night because we yes, have to have these conversations. Dr. Taylor and I are going to do a week of Poli Sci 101. Yes, that's fantastic. On the air, Monday through Friday. Uh, yes. People that's, have that's got to Brother Curry, can you hear me? Brother Curry, can you hear me? Yes, I can. I, I just want to tell you, I never met you, brother, but I really appreciate your thinking. I really appreciate listening to you talk. Oh, brother, I'm humbled. And you are, and you are courageous because half the stuff you say, a lot of um, men, especially black male scholars, just don't have the courage to say some of the things you're saying. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, I'll keep trying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, Texas A&M University, down there on the southern part of the plantation. And we'll see you on Saturday. <laughs> All right, ma'am. Y'all take care. Yes, okay. Bye We're going to take a break. We do have some callers uh, with us tonight at Our Common Ground. Of course, our chatters in the chat room, if you'd like to join them, at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. We have the funky academic. Uh, he is Irami Osei from Pong and... He is new to our common ground, and we really appreciate him being with us tonight. Yvette Carnell, you know her if you are an Our Common Ground regular. She is the editor of BreakingBrown.com, and her articles have been featured in the Huffington Post, Your Black World, NPR, The Nation, The Guardian, Politico, and she is eyes on. 
and Dr. James L. Turner. He is the U University of San Francisco and UC Berkeley Black Studies Department Chair, author of Black Nationalism in the United States, and he has written extensively about the deaths of Prince and Muhammad Ali, the 2016 races, and the Obama exit, and, of course, racial bias and sentencing of rapists in this country. This is our common ground, and we will be right back right after this break. Everybody can take a breath. I am really scared. All we want to do is make crazy. All we want to do is Can you tell me why? Every time I step outside, I see my niggas die. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. That it ain't no gun they make that can kill my soul. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. How do you wake up the entire African American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in the journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. No matter what, know your values. No matter what, know you matter. The I Declare Show, home of Real Raw Right Now Talk Media. I Declare Show is where we deal with the difficult, real, raw, right now. The I Declare Show. Real, raw, right now, talk media. I Declare. The I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. I'm Janice Graham, and I Declare. It's real, raw, and right now. The I Declare Show with India Declare. Truth Works Network. Truth works truth works network talk radio it's the black voice collaborative right here on blog talk radio i'm janice grant this is our phone it would be my honor if you would join Truth Works Network. I believe in truth. Truth Works Network. Truth Works. You don't see this coming? 
You don't see this narrative coming as they force another jet fight. As they the best in political talkback, common sense, right from the concrete, urban, progressive, politics, politics, politics. Friday night at TruthWorks Network, 10 p.m. Alpha drills down deep the lies, the conspiracies in politics. It's just damn politics. The Alpha Show. A system built to divide and impoverish and destroy us cannot stand if we do. If you have no interest in equal rights for black people, then do not make suggestions to those who do. Sit down. But freedom is somehow always conditional here. You're free, they keep telling us. But she, she, she would have been alive if she hadn't acted so free. Tamir Rice's 14th birthday. So I don't want to hear any more about how far we've come when paid public servants can pull a drive-by on a 12-year-old playing alone in a park in broad daylight, killing him on television and then going home to make a sandwich. percent of the people that the police kill here uh, are unarmed and about 25 percent have a documented history of mental illness and so you have situations where it's true that sometimes the police uh, confront an active shooter and kill them but many many times they kill um, unarmed people or people who are mentally disturbed or people that just didn't follow their commands fast enough uh, like you saw in the la- in the uh, uh, the two killings last week Another major thing to remember is that these killings go completely unpunished. Uh, 99 times out of 100 in, in uh, the United States, a policeman can beat you up and kill you, and not one thing will happen. And now it's a winner. Winter in America. And now back to Our Common Ground. And thank you for being with us. This is our common ground. And he is absolutely right that accountability is not a part of the system of justice or injustice for black people in this country. And I want to thank our guests, Dr. James L. Turner, Yvette Carnell, and Osei Brepong. Uh, for joining us. Oh, say, tell us a little about you. I, I discovered you this morning. <laughs> you call yourself the funky academic. 
Yeah, my name is Ayumi Ose Frimpong. I uh, have a website, www.thefunkyacademic.com, where I do political philosophy, and I set the political philosophy to uh, 70s funk and 90s hip-hop. So I talk about issues like what is justice, what, is, what are rights, what's freedom, um, do Black Lives Matter is a video I, I, I recently produced because I find out that people talk about justice and they fight for justice and they're willing to die for justice, but then you ask them what is it and then they become silent. And I think that's a problem. That's a problem for our movements. That's a problem for the way we do politics. And like, this is my way of trying to raise the level of the sea. So if you have any questions about my work, go to uh, www.thefunkyacademic.com and subscribe. And also, if you really like what I'm doing, um, you can opt to pay, you know, sign up to pay $5 or $15 or $50 a month so I can keep doing what I'm doing. And this is one thing I actually wanted to talk about on the show. Yes. When we talk about the Negro whispers and the rest, people assume, and it's really easy to assume, especially in the black community, because so many of our leaders were spiritually inclined, that um, black leaders and black institutions are selfless. But, like, that's just not the case with any institution. Now, I'm not selfless. I would very much like your listeners to go to my website and, like, kick in so I can do better work that will help the community, but also so that I can live. So, like, mm-hmm. if we forget that Melissa Harris Perry, like, was paid by MSNBC to give a particular message. Joanne Reed is paid to give a particular message. These are not selfless Negroes. Like, they're paid to give a particular message. And I actually think when Melissa Harris Perry was probably the most dangerous and the most interesting was in that time before she got her job with Elle, but after she got that job, I mean, but after she was let go from MSNBC. Because then, in, like, a lot of ways, she was a real free Negro. She was angry. <laughs> she was she was angry. She, she was, was free. She <laughs> if I lost a million-dollar contract, I'd be pissed <laughs> off, too. <laughs> Handling <laughs> all the business for her family, for those cousins, for all her people who were calling her on the phone saying, hey, Melissa, can you help me out with my light bill this month? All of that entire network was gone with her. So, yeah, exactly. she was angry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, one free. of the things I'm, I'm glad you did bring up the, the media is that uh, I have been doing Our Common Ground for 33 years, uh, and it'll be 34 in October. And when I worked for terrestrial um, radio, uh, one thing I could, my style was good there because I had four hours to do it every day. (laughs) But you are so confined. Um, I literally had a station manager standing in the studio while I was talking about his, his, him, on the air and what the radio station needed to do, he came into the studio. He stood there, looked out the window. When I got off the air, I knew I was done. But (laughs) That's real. Yeah, but when you do it this way, and I don't do this for those of you who think that I do, this is not the job where I get paid. I don't get paid anything here. This is me paying my rent on the planet. But when I retire from my real job, y'all, we're going to pass the the basket uh, on yeah. Saturday night. <laughs> well, thank you for bringing that up. That. Uh, Yvette, Parnell, I wanted to talk to you 
about accountability. And, 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 and it also extends not only to accountability in our courts, accountability to our government, but it also extends to accountability in our media. I think that what has happened over the last four day, five days has been, in the media, has been unbelievable. Number one, that any um, journalist would invite Rudy Giuliani to talk about race and policing is beyond the pale to me. Well, well, no, I I agree with you, but but the, the, but the problem is, you know, is that it's sort of what Irama was was touching on is that we don't have any we don't have any outlets to kind of really challenge that in a meaningful way. So they can bring him on, and what can we do? And and it's it's almost <laughs> as if like, and when you tell black people, well, you got to pay for this. Well, I don't have money. I don't have this. I, I mean, well, what do you want us to do? I mean, what what mm-hmm. do you want us to do? Because because the truth of the matter is, even even in terms of what I do, I don't get I don't get big money out of it, and I can't even God forbid I don't have enough money to pay a reporter to go and kind of challenge stuff that's happening and fly to different states. That, that's what a media corporation is. But you know. When you, when you kind of put that to black people in, in the sense of you're going to have to do stuff that white people don't have to do. They don't have to necessarily. You can just subscribe to the New Yorker if you want to, but you can watch CNN, whatever. But they're not invested in the same way that we are. They're not living on the edge the same way as we are, and you will have to kind of invest in that. And so that's kind of what I was thinking. And, and to take it a step further, you know, one of the things that kind of sent a chill down my spine this morning, I saw an article um, that said, no, no, it was a news report, actually, it was CNN, and this guy said that, you know, um, the, the shooter, the Dallas shooter, the, the Micah Johnson, said he was, he was radicalized by, by African-American websites, by Afrocentric <laughs> websites, right? Like, as, as, if, as if a black person needs a website to be, to be radicalized. But now you really, you really, you really, to, to me, the reason that's going to chill down my spine is like this is something to kind of shut black media down. This is, mm-hmm. you know, what if Breaking Brown is on his server? What if Breaking Brown is on his history? Like, what does that mean for me as a black publisher? And I don't have Wait a minute. money to defend when, myself in court. When you posted the the Facebook page that he was supposed to, that, that took credit for the shooting, you should have seen me scrambling around to find out if it was one somebody had put me on or I had I had a light or something. I was scrambling it's around like a mofo. What are you gonna do? Doctor Osei, it's your computer that's giving us the feedback. Uh, okay. I'll see what I can do. Okay. Um, so, you know, it it, it is um, – we're dealing with people who are so – their depth of understanding of what is happening here is so limited. Well, I, I, I want to ask you that, um, you know, to, to what extent do you – uh, give agency uh, to democracy, or the question of de- or questions of democracy in light of these developments. Um, I'm thinking that we should. Have, I, I guess I'm asking faith in black democracy. Should we have faith in black Twitter that black people have moved along with their allies in the masses in major cities like Phoenix, out here in a place called Carmichael? 
Pike, California, um, Minneapolis, Baton Rouge, Dallas, New York City, all over Atlanta, all over this country, black people are responding. So Rudy Giuliani, to me, I think the presence and the visual image democracy, people on the ground, in masses, um, is... So you get, you're getting uh, feedback talk, talk. from your computer. I don't have a computer, so I'm oh, not okay. sure. Okay, something, something is happening huh. on somebody's phone or something. I'll, I'll only have a huh. phone. I don't have a computer. Yeah, I just have my phone. Okay. Uh, but even, I'm sorry I kept going on, but I wanted to ask you, do, do you put any faith in the people, the democracy, the bottom? Put any stake in it in terms of in terms of? I mean, yeah, in terms of being able to to impact things, you said like Rudy Giuliani, and we don't have the resources and the tools of the instruments. Well, because I pay, I pay a lot of attention to linguistics, right? And I and I understand propaganda, and so I know when I see CNN and they're sort of they're sort of they're they're in the business of of, of feeding right. everybody this propaganda that that the the problem isn't 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 white society. The problem is isn't isn't the ruling class. The problem is that this guy was radicalized by black websites. I mean, when I went when I went and saw the black website they were talking about, this page had three hundred and three likes. So are you are you telling me that this page to put that to put that in context context, Breaking Brown has like seventeen thousand likes. Right? That's my website. So to put that in context, this page has three hundred and three three hundred and three likes. And you mean to tell me that they that they trained that they trained this milit milit the guy who's in the military to like be a sniper and put him out like they're ISIS or Al Qaeda, you know? I mean, this 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 whole idea was it was it was garbage. But because they had it and there was no space to be like, listen, black people, this is a lie. And there was no space for me to like you know to like reach all black people and say this is this is garbage. Like to put marketing dollars behind right. it because even Facebook now is like saying if you want to reach all your followers, you got to pay me. So I don't have the marketing dollars to go in there and put $300 behind it and say, let me just reach at least all of my people and say this is garbage. So that's what I'm talking about in terms of the power of media, the power of propaganda. And we're in a propaganda war here. This is a media war here. Yeah, and they have really been waging it all weekend to convince us that Micah Xavier Johnson is the enemy and the police are not. Well, well, this whole idea. Well, do you you think black people see Micah X. Johnson differently than white people and others do now? Oh, I do. I don't know whether or not black people are willing to say it, but I think a lot of black people understand understand that we all have sympathy for the officers who died. You know, they all had families. They all had loved ones. But I think black people understand, don't ask me if it's okay to kill officers unless you're willing to unless you're willing to have me ask you if it's okay to kill innocent black men on the street in front of their children. So unless you're willing to ask both of those questions, let's not ask any one of those questions. I think that's what black people feel. But I think that's a very delicate needle to thread without the the mainstream media calling you, oh, you're in bed with the terrorists, you're in bed with the killers. That's not what we're saying, but it's very easy to have have your language construed in that way if you're not careful. I think black people are trying to be careful because we understand that we're in the belly of the beast and we don't want to get in trouble. Before we go to our callers, Dr. Taylor, do you have uh, some um, comment about the question of democracy and how propaganda works in our society? Yeah, I think that's what Du Bois understood early on, is once he realized that racism 
was this creature uh, unto itself. A white supremacy was a creature unto itself. Uh, he basically, once he saw the kind of racial violence we're seeing, uh, particularly the lynching of Sam Hose, Du Bois, you know, abandoned all this highbrow intellectual elitism and began to commit himself to the vi- vigorous propaganda. And he engaged Paul Robeson and others uh, in, you know, men and women in, in propaganda. He understood through the um, through his, you know, uh, Crisis magazine that propaganda was important. So he said the work that Tommy says that he's just doing that I've seen as well. Um, you know, the work that many other people are doing, all of you have expressed that we aren't being paid, you know, uh, you know, out of our commitments to, to these, these conversations and these, these, you know, these ideas. I'm paid by my university, obviously, but in terms of me making money, you know, I mean, I'll be you know, doing a whole bunch of stuff, and I don't get $5 for it. I'll be on TV about 20 times in the next, in the next two weeks, and I won't get $5 from it. And, and, and the freedom it gives me is to bluntly say what I think. And I do often go online or on TV, rather, and say bluntly what I think. Um, you know, I'll be at the Commonwealth Club tomorrow night here in San Francisco. I'll probably be one of two black people out of about 400 people in the room, and I will, I will say bluntly. You know what I think these uh, moments, what this, what these times are, and I don't. I talk to them the same way I would talk to, to, to the, you know, to the four or five of us if we were sitting around a coffee table, just bluntly saying, this is foul. What we are experiencing, um, it mm-hmm. is a backlash, a racial backlash. It is part of a white crisis. The problem that we have in America is not black people. It's the larger, um, I think, white reality that their um, social order is in flux and in decline as they interpret the increased browning of America, it's important to keep in mind that black, the black population is projected to reach 75 million in 40 years. We are 40, like you say now, 40 to 45 million today. But in less than two full generations, I don't know where this birth boom is coming from, but the United States Census projects that the African-American population is going to reach 75 million and be about 18, 16 to 18% of the U.S. population. Asians are doubling. Latinos are, are growing exponentially. Whites are the only group, national group, that are in decline in terms of natural birth um, you know, uh, increases. And so that, as well as the crisis they're having in the Midwest and in the East Coast with opiate a drug abuse and suicide and alcohol abuse are, are part of an explanation for why Donald Trump uh, has gotten so much traction in these times and why white supremacy seems to be uh, on, on a rebound. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to go to our phones, and I'm going to ask people to be reminded that once a month we have open mic night where you can call and make your speeches and and do all kinds of things, and we give you the time. We are up against time, and we're going to ask you to make your comments brief and your questions concise. And with that, we're going to go to 773, who's been on the on the line for a long time. Thank you for holding. You're on Our Common Ground with Dr. Taylor, Yvette Carnell, and Dr. Osei Frimpong. Frimpong. Uh, Seven seventy. It's Alpha of the Alpha Show. Uh, I knew you'd have to get into this conversation. Well, I just want to. I just want less than five minutes to say what I have to say, because, and it has to do with the, and I agree with, uh, 
what the what your guest has said about what Black Lives Matter should be doing. However, I want to say this. I want to start by saying this. Our early so-called civil rights leaders, uh, Martin, Malcolm, Mecca Evers, they all died paupers. When we call the people who have voices, the Michael Eric Dysons, the Al Sharptons, the Jesse Jacksons, and they're, and they're the old school, that they're not our leaders anymore, that's because they don't want to die paupers. You all have expressed the, the idea that our people aren't willing to pay each other a dime. And every time we have fought for something, they've moved that goalpost and changed yes. that narrative. What, what Black Lives Matter is experiencing is the pushback that each and every civil rights leader has gotten. Yes, sir. And the massive pushback from a huge sound machine. They control the air. It's almost like, what was that program? The scientific program? Don't, do not attempt to adjust your, your sound. Your, it, it, I mean, you cannot say that Black Lives Matter should be doing this or doing that. They are young. They don't know no better. And they will learn. They are in their infancy. But they're going to be around because these are the millennials, and they ain't listening to nobody. They're going to start... I, and, I, and I've made a few posts on Facebook, and I'm not worried about it coming back to bite me. Is it time to shoot first or shoot back? Right. Which time is it? And that's what right. these young people are looking at. I'm in my 60s, 64 in <laughs> September. I've, I've basically seen it all. And when we get a group like Black Lives Matters who is out there making a difference, they may be all over the place making a difference. They may be stumbling and bumbling, but they're still making a difference. That's all I got. Well, thank you, Alpha. Any comments? Nope. Well, just one quick comment. I, 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 you know, I, I have, I have my differences with Black Lives Matter. But I do appreciate the fact that they've brought certain issues to the forefront. The, the fact that we talk about Hillary Clinton and her work in terms of demonizing, you know, young black young black people, especially young black men, as super predators, was because of the the young girl who interrupted Hillary Clinton. So I do think that they have that they have they have contributed something to the conversation that would not have been there had they had they not protested. Having said that, I would I would also say that you know not all of these Black Lives Matter people are 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 are, are millennials. You know, DeRay McKesson is in his thirties. As are as are some of the other people in the forefront of the of the Black Lives right. Matter movement. That's that's along the lines a lot of time of gener uh, of of a Generation X. You know, er, you know, early. You know, you know, not like me. I'm further along, but that's still along the lines. Not all these people right. are in their early twenties, late teens, or whatever. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Okay. I, I will say that real quickly. Um, Black Lives Matter was very interesting with respect to the college. Um, the college protest last year because each college came out with a different uh, platform. And you could tell which platform was informed by black alumni and which platform wasn't because the, 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 the platforms that were informed by black alumni talked about, look, we need to start talking about black workers on campus. We need to talk about unions. We need to talk about black adjunct faculty or faculty that care about black students. They started like, the the Black Lives Matter 
platforms that were informed black alumni and um, black, you know, people in government actually were more substantive and I think productive and institutional. So, like, Black Lives Matter in some forms is more superficial and more concerned with recognition and representation than it is about, like, substantive changes. But in other forms and in other institutions, and especially when, um, you know, people who are used to governing are allowed in the room to, to change the platform, like, a lot of good comes out of the work they're doing. Mhm. Mhm. Was that uh, Doctor Osei? Yeah, that was Doctor uh, Taylor. Osei Sunpong. That was uh, I'm Osei Sunpong. Yeah, and, and I think part of this is this is James Taylor. I think part of uh, Doctor Curry's frustration, um, and I, I wish he was still here to, to respond to this, uh, is that Black Lives Matter, much like Black Power, uh, you know, seem to be uh, talking, you know, radical action, but but they're only committed to reform. And I think, you know, Dr. Curry wants us to move along the lines of Micah Johnson and, you know, not disassociate Micah Do- Johnson from the main, uh, from, from the Black Lives um, Matter struggle or Black Lives Matter. But, of course, that's, that's required, as even Obama's recent comments uh, were, that, you know, you don't want to alienate potential yeah. allies. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, of course, you're not going to alienate black people who have been marching since 2008 haven't alienated one person that supported them before 2008. Mm -hmm. But I just want want to say this before we go to a caller. I want to say that what we have not presented, and I spent most of my adult life in corporate America in the boardroom, and what we have not done is given them their old shit moment. Right. Okay. Well, I think they got a little bit of that today in Baton Rouge, both at the police department and the fact that they had to shut down a mall or two where black people are called the economic boycott and shut it down. And those visuals, you know, again, being promoted throughout social media are going to have a contagion effect. I think if black people begin to made by these actions, that this might be something that people will do. We have 45 mm-hmm. million black people. We can we can do something. If it's just also black people did something all at once, you can impact uh, the, the national discourse. And I think yeah, action, a, a simple day of blackout, a simple yes. day of blackout, where we don't appear outside of our houses, we don't order anything online, we don't order anything from their restaurants, we don't do spend a dime. We take our yeah. children out of their schools. But it, but Bus it has drivers to be, I don't think, show up. But they need to know it. Like when Farrakhan, and, and I know uh, Sister Carnell has been, you know, harsh on Farrakhan, when Farrakhan called for his Million Man March last day of absence, there was no day of absence, you know, for, yeah. for whatever, yeah. you know. And, and, and that, I think, is what we need to do. There's, there's people now, I think it's um, one of the local activist groups are now, I think, Ch- Color of Change, is sending around text saying, don't put this on Facebook, but we're calling for a national boycott of selects targeting targets right now first and then other places after. So these kind of you know tactics might be useful. Yes, they might be. Let's go to six four six. You're on the air at our common ground with Dr. James Taylor, Yvette Carnell and Doctor Osei Frimpong. I have to pause on that. Oh no. Osei Frimpong said it like a chair. Yes, good, good evening, um, BJ, and to your guests. Uh, two quick hey, questions. 
Number one to you, um, Brother Taylor, um, could you clarify the statement that you made in regards to um, Professor Griff and the hero that um, did his thing against yes. those five cops? Because yes. from my um, resources, um, he wasn't studying with Griff. And, I mean, I'm talking to some people who are affiliated firsthand with Griff. They met each other out of the event that Griff was involved with. So, and the second question is this. In regards to people like Darrell McKessie, do y'all know that this guy just got a $200,000 job with um, some agency yes. in Baltimore? You know yes, what I mean? Yes, sir. An alpine something or another, and it's good as an alpine because that might like fit his ski vest. Uh, well, maybe they'll buy him right. out. Maybe they'll buy him out. Yeah, but the thing, but the thing is, yeah, but the thing, the thing is that this this guy is being seen as some sort of leader within this whole twisted um, movement in regards to um, black pride, which is is really leading to the next stage that we as a people are facing that's going to really be the final nail in our coffin, and that's the whole agenda of bestiality, pedophilia, and the real nail. Oh, Jay, come on. Oh. Yeah, no, 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 Janice, stop. Stop you for one second, Janice. Do you know over in Europe they're doing that, Janice? Janice, do you know they're over in Europe practicing bestiality? Please, sister, look into it. They're practicing bestiality here, but it has nothing to do yeah. with the liberation of black people in this country. So uh, let, me, let me just say something. There have always been puppets available to spread propaganda, mislead, miseducate, misinform black folks in this country. Ray Charles could see through DeRay McKesson. So DeRay McKesson <laughs> is not even people, a, a, a bleep yeah. on my radar. I don't think black people actually listen to DeRay McKesson or care about DeRay McKesson. DeRay McKesson is for put up and uh, talks like for white people. Uh, I don't, I, I've yet to meet a black leader, even a fake black leader who takes Dwayne McKesson seriously as um, you know, a voice of wisdom. Now his work comes, I think, if I'm not mistaken, from uh, Teach for America. And yes. I think there's a lot of criticism from academics like myself about the sort of colonial, the colonialization or colonial nature of, of Teach for America. But what we yeah. need to, what do, do we need to be Michelle doing. Do y'all remember Michelle Ray? Do y'all remember Michelle Ray and what she did? See, it's people like Michelle Ray. It's people like Michelle Ray that they go in and they do hit jobs, and then they get rewarded. And in the process, everyday black people suffer for it. And we we don't remember them. It's just like you made a comment earlier about Section 8. Let me tell you what's going on in New York because I live here with Section 8. What they're doing is they're taking the um, Section 8 
from the black communities like Harlem, Bed-Stuy, and Brooklyn of, in, in those areas, and then they're giving the Section 8 back so that they can go out there and rent them in the suburbs at a higher price. And if the landlords don't rent the money to them, they're then suing them. So in the process, they're moving people out of the black communities that they haven't been able to gentrify because of the projects now out to the suburbs, moving us farther and farther away. The game these people play on us, we don't even understand. Jay, stop yelling. Jay, three programs that have come, three major programs of housing that are problematic and have been uh, uh, targeted to black communities, and in fact, uh, it is all a plan for gentrification. So everybody listen up real quick. It's the Housing Choice Vouchers, providing uh, housing assistance, financial assistance to eligible people, knowing that in places like New York City, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, that they are not going to be able to use those vouchers in the city because they can't find housing that will uh, uh, agree to that amount of money. The next, that's housing choice vouchers. So that's how they've been moving Negroes out of the inner city. Second is this new program called RAD. RAD is a program where uh, public ho- properties owned by housing authorities across the country are now being purchased by private developers and HUD pays the private developers, guarantees the private developers a certain number of units that they will pay for under the Section 8 base program. The other is, and this started in the 19, early 1990s, is HOPE 6, where HOPE 6 is where a housing authority gets a grant from the federal government, and what they do is that they re reform the housing and that is in most cities it's been they tear it down they tear down 565 units for instance and they only replace it with 325 units they have to relocate all the residents and most of those residents never come back and that is how cities are making room for gentrification by using federal dollars to make available land and available physical structures for the gentrification. Jay, I got to go. We're almost out of time. But thank well, you for your call. Can I answer that question about Brooklyn? Sure. Okay. Sure. Uh, yeah, on page 180 of my book, Black Nationalism in the United States from Malcolm X to Barack Obama, I talk about uh, Robert Charles, who was a black man in New Orleans who followed uh, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, who was famous at the same time as Booker Washington in the 1890s. He, in fact, died 1895, the same year as Frederick, uh, 1915, the same year as Booker Washington did. Uh, and he's famous for saying, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner is famous for God is a Negro. He, Robert Charles was one of his followers. He studied, in fact, he had his writings on him when one day he was going to pick up a girlfriend at a, on a date in New Orleans, and these white police officers just started messing with him and another black man, and it led to a shootout in a very 
similar situation to like Chris Donner and this and this brother Micah John, uh, X Johnson. And I think you know what I argue in my book is, uh, you know, black rage is not ideologically synonymous with racial violence. Racial violence is racial violence. Black rage is ideologically driven out of the raw material of the black condition. And what Micah X Johnson was really about to see if he was someone with mental problems or if he liked Robert Charles. Is that this is not being portrayed as state-sanctioned violence against state-sanctioned violence. A military-trained soldier come back and take out his anger and wrath on police who are trained now with military tactics. They use a bomb on him that they use in Iraq. So uh, we can talk about black versus blue, but this is state violence uh, co- uh, collapsing against state violence also. Tim McVeigh, John Muhammad, Chris Donner, and this gentleman all have one thing in common. American soldiers who came back and attacked the American public. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are you will find many, many people, especially uh, associated with the AME Church, uh, whose name who have named their children Robert yes. Charles. Right. Thank you, Jay, for your call. Thank you, Alpha, for your call. And uh, we are just about out of time. We've got about five minutes. Uh, and I'm going to ask, starting with Dr. Osei, oh, damn, I have to go look at the name again, <laughs> Irami Osei Frimpong, Irami Osei Frimpong, the funky academic, and his email, his uh, website is thefunkyacademic.com, uh, I posted it in our chat room. Uh, Yvette Cornell of BreakingBrown.com and Dr. James L. Taylor. You'll be able to hear him on my friend Carl Nelson's show tomorrow afternoon. Um, And you can get that at W-O-L-A-M right online. Dr. Taylor will be with Carl. We won't be able to go to the fancy, fancy thing with Dr. Taylor tomorrow night, but, you know, (laughs) and uh, I, I really suggest that you subscribe to BreakingBrown.com and also take a look at some of the wonderful educational videos that Dr. Irami Osei from Pong. <laughs> Damn, I'm going to have to give you a name. Well, I've been my name all this. my life. I, I, am, I am too old for this. Uh, let's get your, your parting shots at this whole idea of black people and how the the events of the last week have emphasized and inflated their marginalization, their trauma, and their sense of terrorism uh, and having to come to, to grips with black men especially being targeted for murder. Like the targeting of black men is fascinating. I mean, it's it's horrifying, but it's it's fascinating also because you look at the the way the movement of rights in this last week. Like it was what um, maybe not even a week ago that if like the police can now just stop and frisk someone that's legal now. You can just do that on suspicion on suspicion yeah. that they have a warrant. 
Um, yep. You can just do that now, right? So that's it's, now, it's, it's, it's legal. It's horrifying. We're going to talk legal. with you about that on Saturday night. And um, the interlocutors, Carnell, Curry, and Pascal Robert will be with us. That's our common ground, interlocutors, uh, in two weeks or a week after. Dr. Taylor, let's hear your parting shot on, on this notion. We've only got a few minutes, uh, so or, or, we've got to get out notion, of here. Or the, or, could you reiterate the, the point that you want us to emphasize, the, the on notion of? What, this ev- what these events really highlight for us. Yeah, they, they highlight to me the cyclical. They, they highlight to me the cyclical, the cyclical nature of the black experience in America. They highlight to me the almost impossible situation that black people and white people and everyone else in this country uh, is in, in the idea that somehow you can make this uh, a racial democracy where there's no heretofore uh, example of racial democracy in this country on a grand scale of, to the kind that Du Bois hoped would come out of Reconstruction, uh, and so. You know, the cycle continues. Uh, the backlash to, uh, you know, Reconstruction was re- Southern Redemption. The backlash to Jack Johnson was, you know, white pogroms. Uh, and and the, the, the backlash to black success, say, in Tulsa was, you know, riots. The backlash to the Civil Rights Movement was Ronald Reagan's war on drugs. The backlash to Barack Obama, for better or for worse, whether he's done anything for black people or not, is this Tea Party, Donald Trump, uh, birther movement, uh, Sarah Palin, revengeist, white rash, nationalist, and white supremacist reaction. And so we have to deal with that and acknowledge as a people that we are in the midst of a white, um, uh, you know, Tourette syndrome around black people, um, you know, trying to uh, just be free to drive down the street in America. Yvette? I think what we're witnessing right now is bigger than is, is bigger than two murders. We're witnessing the implosion of Black America. We're witnessing mm. right now the death of a community. And I think people mm. think I'm being hyperbolic, but I'm not. I mean, ask yourself mm. why this man did why this man was selling CDs. You know, why why did he have to make his money that way? You know, he, because there are not opportunities out there for Black people. Ask yourself why 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 when you ask yourself why Philandro Castillo has six thousand dollars worth of tickets over the last. 10, 14 years, been stopped 50 some odd times, you know, this is an apartheid-like state, and what you see is the implosion of an entire community because we were designed to fail, and so, and, and, and without government stepping in to, to say, you know, we're going to, we're going to, well, you know, we're going to make you succeed, we're going, to, we're going to help you succeed, we're going to lift you up, you're going to continue to see people that were brought here as chattel slaves, people who were brought here to actually, you know, be servants you know, implode mm-hmm. because we're kind of redundant to the economy right now, a company that doesn't yep. have jobs. So we're imploding, and that's what happens. This is a desperate yep. time for black people. I don't think we realize. Well, thank you all, Dr. James L. Taylor, Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com, and Dr. Irami Osei from Pong. <laughs> I want to thank all of you in our chat room, uh, our callers, and we'll see you on Saturday night at our Thank common you. ground. Thank you. Transforming Thank you. truth transforming truth to power and our You can't describe the Gestapo tactics that are practiced in Nazi America against black people in this country, day in and day out, north, south, east and west. You shouldn't open up your white mouth about Germany or South Africa or Portugal or any other country on this earth. 
The Los Angeles Police Department, for the past five days, have used America's press, meaning the radio, the television, the newspaper, to cover up one of the worst crimes, one of the most inhuman acts of atrocity that have ever been committed in a civilized society or in a so-called civilized society. And this Gestapo-type action is a crime not only against black people, it's a crime against society, people who call themselves civilized, it's a crime against people who call themselves religious, and it's a crime against people who call themselves God-fearing. And now it's a winner. Winter and- 